Good morning, everyone. Uh, um, The Apostle Paul does speak about mothers in a very affectionate way when he describes his own ministry as a mother and says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. That's what a mother does. A mother imparts her own life for her children. And Paul identifies this beautiful characteristic in his own ministry as a caring, nursing, loving mother who gently cares and loves her children. So we do honor you this morning as our mothers and those that have nurtured and cared and given of themselves with great love. So we we do honor you this morning. In Romans chapter 14, we continue our series on loving well. As we talk about mothers that love well, we're going to talk again again about loving well this morning as we look at the Christian life as, uh, as an ex- exemplary uh, example of love in the world today. We were um, just recently gone and we were invited and we had this wonderful couple that invited us and sent us to England, London, for a world conference. There were 6,000 world leaders. I don't know how many of them were really leaders, but We were all considered world leaders, and there we were, 6,000 of us in three different venues in London. We were in the Royal Hall. Royal Albert Hall was a beautiful place where we heard many speakers. Simon Sinek actually came and addressed leadership, and Jean Vernet from, I always thought it was L'Arche, but it's L'Arche, and it's a ministry to adults with different different mental capacities and challenges, and it's reached all over the world now, this ministry to adults that have challenges in the area of mental health. And uh, he spoke of the blessing that the brokenhearted are to the world. And we heard Mark Batterson, who wrote The, the Circle Maker on prayer and kind of, kind of building new vision for leaders. And, and of course, Nikki Gumbel, who's the pastor of Holy Trinity Brompton, a church of England, in Hyde Park, who sponsored the whole event, and all these Christians from all over the world, from different backgrounds and and various denominations, came together. It was beautiful. And Nikki Gumbel began the entire conference with these words, you cannot leave without love. You cannot lead without love. Leaders lead by love. And then he went on to describe the leader as an individual who loves greatly. And I thought about that as it relates to our message this morning in our series, Romans 12 to 16, about loving well. And I thought this is true of us as well. Christians lead with love. It is our calling card. It it is the thing that we lead with. And Paul says the most important is love. It's what other people see when they see Christians. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Means let's love genuinely from the heart. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. The thing that you owe your neighbor, besides the Venmo account that you have, and you may owe them a little money, that you need to Venmo them, 
the one thing you owe them is love. That's the one thing you owe. You owe each other love. That's what Paul says. And then in Romans chapter 13, 9, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. We're in a series about loving well. Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan pastor and preacher of the late 1700s, devoted his life to preaching and developing the church and writing about it. One of, one of the most remarkable writers of the Christian faith wrote these words about Christianity. He said, the goodness of Christianity is such that even if Christianity were not true, it's still the best way to live. How about that? The greatest apologetic for why you believe what you believe is because of all the options, Christianity is the best because it promotes love as the deepest, most valuable asset, the most important element of your faith is learn to love well. And it's what other people need. And that's what Jonathan Edwards said. Just got back from this trip and we got off the plane and I don't know who it was, but someone asked us, did someone get thrown off the plane? It was the first question we got. Not like, did you see any acts of love on, on your trip? But did someone get thrown off the plane? So immediately what we go to in a world where there is a lot of strife and conflict, where there is a lot of differentiation and racism and breakdowns of relationships, the one thing that we have that we need to come back to is love. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, they will know you. The world will know you, not by what you believe, not your theology, but your love. Your love for one another. The way you relate to one another. And that's what Romans 14 is about. How do we love well one another? And here it is. Romans 14 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his or her opinions. Very interesting. Paul begins chapter 14 by calling out parts of our faith or parts of our church that are weak in faith. Now later he's going to talk about you who are strong should help those that are weak. Paul is not using weak and strong in a pejorative way as if weak is bad and strong is good. And one is inferior, the other is superior. One is good, one is bad. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a weak in faith and a strong in faith. In other words, there's lots of different people in the Christian body. And some of us are very early along in our faith, and we're weak in our faith. We're new to faith. It's a brand new experience, and that's okay. And some of us are a little bit further along, and we're strong in our faith, and that's great too. And yet within the body, what Paul identifies as the most important thing as an act of love is to accept one another. Accept. Notice the word he uses. It's very, very important. It literally means to take a side. Take a side. Bring them along. Accept them. Receive them. Take along with you. It means to look to your left and to your right, behind you and in front of you, within the body of believers... And it sounds a lot like the person is picking someone up and helping them along, inviting them in, going with them, helping them along their way. That's, that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 14. Those that are weak in faith, you need to help them, help develop them, help grow them, help bring them along. See, that's what the whole thing's about. 
And so Paul is identifying these two individuals, those that are weak in faith, those that are strong in faith, and saying those that are strong need to help those that are weak. And yet, and, and, and we're dealing in a context here with, with things that we eat and days that we consider more important than other days. In other words, religious festivals, the Sabbath, the days that you worship the Lord, the days that you think are more important for things that are holy, or the way in which you approach your diet, because some of you think that what you eat is holy, and some things you eat are unholy. And, and, and it comes from a rich variety of religious background. The Apostle Paul's talking to a church in Rome with Gentiles and Jews, and some of the Jews that have come out of their Jewish tradition and their faith and their belief in the Old Testament have held to a strict guideline on lots of different issues, and they're not sure what to do with them. And now they have this new freedom in Christ, and, and Jesus is their Messiah, and they're not sure what to do. Do I, do I go back to those rituals? Do I, what, what, what do I do with my practices now that it relates to, now as it relates to the Messiah? And then these Gentile believers who've had no faith whatsoever. They've done anything they've wanted, and now they've come into a new relationship. And there's lots of varieties of people with lots of backgrounds, and lots of different views on these things called the gray areas of the Christian life. That's what Paul's identifying when he talks about eating vegetables or not eating, or this day is more important than that day. That's what the context is about. He's saying there's a large middle of the Christian life where we're offered freedom to live in relationship with Christ the best we can, guided by our relationship with Christ. Now, there's a moral center. There's the word of God. There's, there's black and white issues in the Christian life, and the Bible describes those for us. There's no question. Paul's not talking about the black and white issues. He's talking about the gray issues of the Christian life, the decisions that we make every day that make us unique, that, 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 that demonstrate our expression of faith in a unique way, living in this world. And we have tremendous freedom. This is a very freeing passage. And we need to offer that to one another. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. And yet what I find is that in verse 1, be careful not to pass judgment. Because in verse 10, we will all before, become before God as in judgment. The judgment seat of Christ. But it's not a judgment as we think it is. It's very ironic that the Apostle Paul says, don't judge one another. We are not to judge one another. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus even says, do not judge one another lest you be judged. There's never a time for us to bring judgment against one another. In fact, at the very end of our lives, we are brought before what is called the judgment seat of Christ, which is not even a judgment seat. The word is bima, which means literally a celebration after an event where you have won a prize. It is an award ceremony. Every single believer will stand before God, Christ and receive a reward based upon their faithfulness. Judgment is gone. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west. Your life, in your life, God will never bring up that thing you did or, or that action or your past. Christ's blood has been shed for your sins, past, present, and future. This is a wonderful truth. 
And you stand in that, and one day you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is an award ceremony, like a judge at the end of an Olympic running match. And he sits in this bema seat, and he pulls out this wreath and puts it over your head and says, well done. You've won the race. You've run well. That's what we get to look forward to. No judgment. So therefore, if that's true, then why are we passing judgment upon one another? It is the greatest pastime of the, pastime of the Christian to pass judgment on one another. We all do it. We really do. And, and, and it's something that we just have to let go. In fact, Sheldon Van Auken, a wonderful Catholic friend of C.S. Lewis who came to faith in Christ, said these words. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Scathing, isn't it? It reminds us to set that aside and pursue love. It's helping one another, not hurting one another in our development and our relationship with Christ. And so here's three principles. Here they are. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about offering grace, not judgment. We're going to talk about allowing others to determine what is right and wrong for themselves. And then we're going to talk about, which is the greatest act of love, is limiting our own freedom for the sake of someone else. So let's look at these three components of offering love to one another in the Christian body. So let's look at the first one, and the Apostle Paul begins in chapter 14 in the first four or five verses, though he skips around a bit with this idea. He talks about offering judgment, uh, grace, not judgment. Verse 4, it says this, Who are you to judge the servant of another? He looks at it and says, Who are you? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards another day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So the first thing he does is he identifies the fact that we are no longer to stand in judgment, but this idea of accepting the one who is weak in faith is offering them grace. The greatest act of love we can do, according to this first section, is offer grace. And what I have found is that oftentimes we don't offer grace. We want to offer rules and regulations, stipulations. And we want to pile it upon people. When in fact, that's not our role. No one will stand before me. I have no judgment. I have no judgment seat. I have no authority. And Paul continues to say this over and over again in the New Testament, that we are not in that role. We will only be asked by Christ if we knew him and how we lived. That's what Christ wants to know. And so if a person wants to only eat vegetables because they think that this meat was sacrificed somewhere to an idol of a false religion, and they think that by eating that meat, they're cooperating with that particular religious belief, and it's against their faith and conviction, that's fine. But if they can eat meat and it's not a problem, and they don't care whether the head was chopped off and put on the wrong altar... It's still a steak, and a steak's a steak, and it's good, and that's all right. And they can eat that steak, and they can eat that with full conviction that it's all right, that God provided that for them. 
or maybe the Sabbath, that you follow the Sabbath, but another person doesn't follow the Sabbath. That's okay, too. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we're all in development. And early in our development, the idea of being weak in faith is we prefer the rules over the relationship, and that's all right. We really do, early in our faith, want to know, okay, what's this faith like? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? Could someone please tell me? And we're like school children. We go off to school with our backpacks and our lunches, and we follow the rules. And then at some point, we mature. We're not sure when, but apparently we do. And we find more and more freedom to make good decisions, wise decisions for ourselves. And we grow up. And Paul's saying that's true of us as well. But let's be careful and mindful that within our congregation, we have school children and we also have adults. We have college students. We have all different ages. We were at a conference, you know, as I mentioned, in, in uh, London. And two years ago, it was one of the most beautiful scenes. We were actually invited. And this benefactor and flew us out and paid for the conference and, and then reminded us it was coming back the last, it was two years ago, this last year, this year, and we went again. But two years ago, there was a moment, and it was a remarkable moment, because when we got there, we realized we met people from all over the world, Trinidad, Africa, all over. We were, they were from uh, all throughout Europe, America, every, every part of the planet. It was amazing, from different backgrounds, Catholic, Protestant, we were all mixed together. In one moment, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who was friends with Nicky Gumbel, the pastor that put on the conference, they were college roommates together. And he went into business, he went into the oil industry for 11 years and worked for a French oil company, and then had a, con a conversion experience at some point in his life and decided to go into full-time ministry and was trained and was selected to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is the Church of England. And he was standing there on stage, and up comes the cardinal, the Catholic cardinal of England, Vincent Nichols. And they both stood together, and they shared their faith, common faith in Jesus, and their love for all people. And it was one of the most liberating, intoxicating moments in my Christian life to see the body of believers joining together in unity, in love, in the name of Jesus. It was powerful. And we just stood there in awe. We had, I, Denise and I had never seen that before. It was a beautiful display of unity and love. And, and then they shared this moment where they first met when they both took these new roles. They, they, they met together and they, they asked everybody to leave. Please, all their, their assistants were excused. And the two of them found themselves in a room together. And they started laughing. And one looked at the other and said, can you believe we were chosen for these jobs? <laughs> two human beings just like us, realizing their frailty, coming together and showing unity in the name of Jesus. It was beautiful. Offering grace instead of judgment. It was a beautiful display. Now, there's lots of gray areas in our Christian worldview. Lots of gray areas, and I wrote some of them down. I started with tattoos. I don't know why I started with tattoos. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no secrets here, but apparently it was first on my list. I don't know why it's on my list, but there it is. What do we do with those? I don't know. It's a gray area. I wrote down dress. 
I wrote down alcohol. I wrote down legal substances like foie gras. I wrote down, you're a little sharper than the beach community. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Jared, thank you for laughing on that one. Cigars. I wrote down cigars. I didn't write cigarettes, but I guess that would be a gray area as well. Someone once was asked Billy Graham whether if they smoked, they'd go to hell. And Dr. Billy Graham said, no, but you smell like you've been there. <laughs> and I thought that's a great answer. In fact, my greatest writer of all times is C.S. Lewis, and he smoked a pipe to the day he died, and he put it lit in his pocket. He had one jacket, and it would burn a hole in his jacket, and his wife would have to mend it over and over again because he'd drop this lit pipe, and he'd go off and hang out with J.R.R. Tolkien and all of his other friends, and they'd talk about their, their writing projects and smoke his pipe. And that's just what he did. Movies. I wrote down movies. And then I wrote down some more subtle gray areas. Ooh, subtle. Attitudes. Why are people not like me? Why don't people vote like me? We judge others for their status and their jobs and their education. We put all sorts of stipulations on one another. I remember when I left, I graduated from college and I joined a real estate firm. And I worked in commercial real estate and I had a 67 Mustang, 1967, fire engine red, 289 with glass packs, U.S. mags, air shocks. It was loud, obnoxious, and you could see me coming. And I thought, this is not a good car for commercial real estate. Could you imagine a client climbing in that car? No way. So I had to sell it, which unfortunate, was quite unfortunate because it's, it's worth far more than what I sold it for now. And I had a decision to make. What car do I buy? And I ended up buying a Toyota Cressida. But I really wanted a Mercedes. Now, no, no offense against Toyotas. They're great cars. But I like Mercedes, too. There's no judgment here. We're all in a no-judgment-free zone. And I felt so much guilt and shame, and I didn't want to offend anybody, and I felt within my context of my Christian fellowship that I would be judged if I had bought a too-expensive car. And yet, I realize now it was wise judgment because the car lasted me for 201,000 miles. There's a great story on that car. I took it all the way to Chicago. 199,998 miles, and the next day I was driving to church, and I was going to take a picture of turning 200,000 miles. And guess what? My wife ran to the grocery store that night and took my car. I climbed in that car that morning, and I had my camera out, and I was like, 200,000 miles, my car, 202,000 miles, what the heck just happened here? But I got a Toyota instead of a Mercedes. You know, I really felt in, in previous situations and in, in backgrounds that I have been judged for hanging around Lots of non-church people. And I want to be honest with you. I really like non-church people. I really do. When there's an option of whether to hang out with my non-church friends and hang out with my Christian friends, there's a real dilemma here because I really love both of them. I really do like people that don't go to church. I really enjoy them. I enjoy them for who they are. I enjoy them for their honesty. 
I enjoy them for genuine just pursuit of life. And I have a lot of common with them. And yet I have often felt, well, you hang out with too many non-Christians. Or you should be hanging out with just Christians. See, it's very subtle, isn't it? What we do. And rather than judge, accept one another with a lot of grace in the area where Jesus says, you need to navigate your Christian life in the center, which is a big center, with tremendous freedom, knowing that what's guiding you is Christ. The second point that I want to mention is this. Here it is. Allow others to determine what is right for themselves. It's not my job. See, I'm not the judge. I mean, Paul, we've already said, says, each person must equally can be convinced in his own mind. Verse 5. Each person. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. See, where Paul's putting the emphasis is not in our judgment or not in your concern or my concern for you or your... It's back to Christ. He's the center of my life. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be both Lord. He is Lord, both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not before one another. Each one of us will give account of himself before the Lord. So therefore, I need to allow other people to determine what's right, what's right for them and what's wrong for them. They may disagree, you may disagree. It doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. See, 5 and 6 reminds us in, in chapter 14 that we honor God, honor our relationship with God, and that's the first priority. We offer freedom. We are on our way after our conference. We spent some time with some dear friends in Oxford, and we've met them several years ago when I was on sabbatical, and they invited us to go to Verbier, Switzerland, the, basically the, the ski area, Chamonix and Zermatt, the area of, in Switzerland where all the great world-class skiers go, and this is off-season, of course, and this period, this time, and there's no snow in the lower mountains, but they sure are, there sure is still a lot of snow at the higher level, but we had this wonderful time with them, and we drove from Geneva, rented a car, and drove along Lake Geneva, which is Lac Le Mans, and it's one of the largest lakes in, in Western Europe, and there's all these beautiful wineries along the mountain, this steep grade, this steep mountain that goes down into the lake, and we stopped and walked along the vineyards. And there are signs that say these, are the, these, were, these vineyards were built by 12th century monks. And, and these, these monks lived and they, they, they irrigated and they, they planned out the vineyards. And this was communion wine and they sold the wine. And that's how they supported themselves. And we had a beautiful afternoon. And as we were driving, we were talking about, but my friend Bruno is Belgian. And so we talked about the monks from Belgium that, that developed wine, you know, just the beautiful tastes of Belgian beers. And, and so we were talking about beer and wine and kind of in America, we're not sure what to do with all of this. And, 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 and Bruno was saying that I met a lot of my American friends are concerned about drinking alcohol. And he says, there's a big problem with church history with that view. Because a lot of church history we see in this demonstration of the, of, of religion and faith and, and loving Christ and alcohol. And we're not sure really how to navigate that responsibly, but that's up to us to figure out. It's not up to somebody else. It's our responsibility before the Lord because we'll sit before the Lord and he's going to honor us based upon our faithfulness in these decisions. 
And so we have to honor one another. And so it's a matter of seeing the diversity within the unity of the body of Christ. The third thing I want to mention to you is at the very end in verse 13, the Apostle Paul changes gears. And here's where he goes. Therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. What? He just offered us tremendous freedom. He just offered us this huge middle. And now what he says is make sure that what decisions you're making, the decisions you're making are not a stumbling block for somebody else. It's not, it's as if he's offered us this wide berth. He's offered us tremendous freedom of expression in our faith, and then he's called it back for the sake of love. The greatest act of liberty is not your ability to be free to make the decisions you want to make, but to restrict your own freedom for the sake of somebody else. Because you know that that decision you're making would ultimately cause their stumbling. That's what Paul's saying. There are times, there are places, there are events, there are moments when you and I need to be critical about the decisions we're making. Not because it's wrong, but because there's somebody else in the picture. It's your brother and sister in Christ. And you and I pull back our freedom to do what we know we can do because we've heard that it could potentially be a stumbling block for somebody else. I have a great example. We have a wonderful family that grew up in, in our church, have moved to Colorado, Dirk and Stacy Eldridge. Wonderful couple there. They have a, a, a recovery ministry, a recovery program in Colorado for individuals coming out of alcohol and drug abuse. And, and Stacy wanted to attend a Bible study, and she asked, and she said, I'd like a safe place to go where I can meet with other women. There, where there won't be alcohol. And here's what the lady said. Of course. Of course we'll do that for you. If this is what you need, th- we'd be delighted to limit our freedom for your sake. That's what Paul's saying. Be careful not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. If because of food, verse 15, your brother or sister is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do you see that? You're no longer in the area of love. You're in self-love. You're doing what you want to do. But if you pull back for that sake, I just recently did Eric and Donna Crow's wedding. It was a beautiful wedding ceremony. Just recently married. And when I arrived, I noticed there were two, what looked like bars for post-wedding and dinner and all of that. And Eric corrected me and said, these are stations. It was very deliberate. There was a station where you could get wine and beer. There was also a station where you get non-alcoholic drinks. Because there were many people in that wedding ceremony that had struggled with alcohol at some point in their life, maybe currently, maybe in the past. And they wanted to be very, very ultra-sensitive to people that might be struggling. And I thought the deliberate nature of that decision demonstrates a limited liberty for the sake of someone else. That is a powerful demonstration of love. That's what you and I are called to. That's why the world stands up and goes, what in the world's going on over there? You mean to tell me you're really willing to limit something because someone else has come to you? Now, 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 now be careful here. 
This is not, I can go around and say, well, that, that bothers me, that tattoo. Well, that's a tough one right there, right? What are you going to do about that? It's a little late. But, but what are those issues? This is not something I can just go around telling other people what to do and they have to don't stop doing it. This is a serious issue where there's a relationship, there's a development of a relationship, and where there's, there's honesty, integrity, and where I can go and say, hey, what's happening here is if I join in, I could potentially join in, which would cause me to stumble. It's not your behavior, it's the behavior that, could, that, that, would, that I eventually would be led to. Does that make sense? I would fall. I would stumble. And so there's this discussion. And the Apostle Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come on. There are so many bigger issues in the Christian life. Yes, there's eating and drinking. And God has given that for our enjoyment. Jonathan Edwards, as I mentioned to you earlier, is a great pastor of the 1700s in New England. He wrote a treatise on the greatest act of virtue. Now, this is old English language. This is old language, so hang in there with me. But you got to hear this. Because what he's talking about, virtue, virtue is goodness in action. It's acting in a virtuous way toward one another. And what he's about to say is that our benevolence towards God, our good works towards God, results in the, in the fact that we will be benevolent towards one another. That, that our greatest act of goodness and obedience to God is caring for one another. Here's what he says. True virtue, and by the way, in his language, being is God. Being, the reality, is God. God is being. There is no greater being than God. God is reality. And so he uses the word being for God, and he says, true virtue most essentially consists in benevolence to being in general. Or perhaps, to speak more accurately, it is the consent, propensity, and union of heart to being in general, which is immediately exercised in a general good will. What he's saying is that your benevolence towards God results in a good will towards others. He goes on, and he talks about this justice, this proportion that is exercised as a result of your relationship with God toward other people. It's profound when we come to a place and realize we're part of a body, a body of believers, and we're all part of that body of believers. And our greatest demonstration of love is to recognize that we need to offer each other a lot of grace, offer a lot of people the opportunity to make their own decisions. And number three, in certain cases, we limit our own freedom because we know that this might be a stumbling block for somebody else. And so we're mindful of that. And the question we ask ourselves is, would this be offensive to you? In the setting that I'm in, I'm aware of that. And if someone were to approach me, my answer would be, of course. Of course I, I would limit that. For your sake, for the sake of love, I would do it. So this morning we are challenged with this beautiful passage that talks about these gray areas in the Christian life and what we do, and how we navigate personally and corporately. It's our opportunity to show and demonstrate great love by demonstrating great restraint. Let's pray. 
Father, the freedom that you give us in Christ comes from the truth. We know that. And as we think about this whole idea, we're looking at this huge, wide middle of the Christian life called the gray areas. We recognize that at the center of our lives is the truth. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. There is freedom in truth. There's not restriction, disappointment, hardship, this gutting it out. There is freedom that you give us. And we want to live in this freedom with great joy and excitement. The truth leads us into great freedom. But Father, may we do that mindful of others and mindful of you as we navigate life in a sensitive way to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.